Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm on the road this week in San Antonio, Texas. You've been hearing about that in the podcast. Four days of training this week, two days grading from the inside out, two days standards-based learning in action. So uh, looking forward to that. It's, it's Honestly, San Antonio is one of my favorite cities to visit. And I'm certainly looking forward to a great week of work with all of the educators who've come from all over the United States, as well as a few from Canada, uh, but also looking forward to spending time here in San Antonio. Now, this is the first of three weeks on the road for me. So after Texas, it's off to Arkansas for my final visits to the schools I've been working with this year. And I just, I'm, I'm amazed that the month of May is just one week away. Uh, I don't know where the time has gone or how it's gone so quickly, but um, I don't know for I don't know if that's been for you, but for me, it just seems like this uh, time so far in 2022 is just racing by. Okay, a couple of events to remind you of, uh, one that I've been talking about, and then one new one I want to share with you. So I've talked a lot about the annual conference on assessment and grading in Austin, Texas, July 18 through 20. Uh, that's going to feature myself, uh, Cassandra Erkins, Garnet Hillman, Angie Freeze, Tony Reibel, Mandy Stolitz, and Katie White. But I also want to give you a heads up on a fall conference, the Student Agency Institute, happening this October in Laval, Quebec. That'll be October 24, 25, and 26. And that's also going to feature myself. It'll also feature Karen Gazeth, Karen Power, Morgan Michael, who was, of course, on the podcast last week, uh, Katie White, and Andy Hargraves. So all of the information for those events will be found on the Solution Tree website. You can find links in the show notes for those as well. So I'll make sure that's all available to you. Okay, uh, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And of course, a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. Uh, this week, my guest is Mirko Chardon. Mirko is the author of Equity by Design, Delivering on the Power and Promise of UDL. So that's what we're going to focus our conversation on. And in Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk briefly about the difference between leveled questions and leveled responses and why each can have a place in our assessment systems, but each needs to be kept in its place to make sure that we're using them appropriately. So that is today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Mirko Chardon is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by talking about another happiness killer. Now, longtime listeners will recall that way back in episode 26, I talked about what I thought was a big happiness killer in so many people, and that is comparison. Nothing is going to suck the happiness out of you faster than when you compare yourself to other people, especially someone that you think has it better. I mean, someone always has it better than you. But guess what? Someone always has it worse, too. But for some reason, we tend to ignore that side and just dismiss it. We just compare ourselves to people that we perceive to have it better, whether it's personally, professionally, you know, relationships, economically, fitness, what house you have, vacations, whatever, some kind of comparison. It's, it's a killjoy, absolutely. Now, you can have this deep feeling of happiness about what you've accomplished, a sense of satisfaction. Um, and then the minute you start to compare yourself to someone else, that you deem to be more successful, poof, your happiness is gone. And what does that even mean, more successful? As you know, um, especially longtime listeners will know, I ask every interviewee what their definition of success is at the end of every interview. And the range of responses has been so vast that what that's really confirmed for me 
is that we all get to create our own definition of success for ourselves, right? So really, when you see somebody that you think is more successful, that really is just a mental construct. That's not an absolute truth. That's just based on what your definition of success is. That doesn't mean they're necessarily more successful. Anyway, I don't want to spend more time on that, but comparison is an absolute dagger to our happiness. The other happiness killer that I want to focus on today, and, and this may be a bit meta, is having an unreasonable expectation of happiness. When you're happy, you're not happy 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And this idea that to be happy in your life, you're, you're somehow not supposed to feel the normal emotions of life. I mean, that's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? And it's an unreasonable expectation, and no one can sustain that. The idea that if you're happy, you'll always be happy, or that every moment of your life will be happy. That's, that's not realistic for anybody. A person can be a generally happy person, but not be happy all of the time. Uh, ignoring the realities of the moment in favor of some kind of manufactured sunny side of life is the whole notion of toxic positivity. Whereas this uh, sort of denial of reality and this dismissiveness of anything potentially negative. And you re recall me even last week that Morgan Michael talked about that uh, in, in last week's episode. Now, for me, there is a huge difference between being an optimistic person and being, you know, toxically positive. The cynics, of course, view optimism as naive, you know, but but that really isn't it at all. I think they like to craft it that way, but you know, cynics, of course, they like to be cynical because I think they think it makes them sound thoughtful or intelligent or, you know, just a deep thinker and, the, you know, all of those things, especially when they're being cynical and their glasses are at the, you know, have drawn down their nose and they can look over top of their spectacles and, and express their pessimism or their cynicism. Um, I don't see it as that at all, to be honest. I can see right through that act every single time. Optimism is about believing there is a pathway forward, that no matter what happened, no matter how dire the situation is, there is a way forward and a way to overcome it. What, what is the alternative? You're going to wallow in self-pity and, and, and consistently take a pessimistic view of life as it unfolds? Like, oh, yeah, okay, sign me up for that. That sounds like an absolutely brilliant way to live. I wonder sometimes about cynics and pessimists. You know, do, do they think they're winning? Are they, are they hoping to be right? Like, why would you spend your time thinking that something, you know, the majority of your time thinking about something not going to happen or something's not going to work out um, or there's absolutely no way out of this situation? Like, why would you spend your time thinking that way? Why would that be your predominant thought? I, I, I never quite understood that. Who wants to live like that? But being an optimistic person doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't be a realist which means when shitty things happen to you, it's okay to feel shitty, okay? When something doesn't work out, it's okay to feel disappointed. It isn't healthy to deny the reality of a situation and therefore deny the reality of your feelings. Being unhappy is actually a part of life. And it's always in the contrasts that we come to truly appreciate the most desirable outcomes, our happiest moments, right? To understand and appreciate, for example, the feeling of victory, to really appreciate it, only happens once you've experienced defeat. To feel the exhilaration of a breakthrough. Uh, really, the feeling of a breakthrough happens 
because you failed in the past to produce that breakthrough and started to feel frustrated. You felt the contrast of it, right? We need that contrast to appreciate the up. You appreciate it more once you know what it feels like to be down. And we need to embrace those feelings. And I don't say embrace those negative feelings as in rejoice that they've happened, um, but we have to embrace them just from the sense that negative feelings are to be expected because life is filled with ups and downs. When you feel disappointment, there's nothing wrong with you and you're not being negative, right? Feeling negative and being negative are not the same thing. Negative feelings from negative circumstances are normal. You're not negative. You're just being a normal human being. That's what we all experience. Now, being negative or pessimistic, right? That, that's a problem, at least from my perspective. Your feelings are normal. It's a normal human reaction. While being negative is more about your disposition. So what I've come to understand for myself is that it's most critical to simply honor the feelings you're having when your feelings are a reaction to a situation right? There, of course, are times where we overreact, but most of the time we'll realize that after a bit of time has passed. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel let down. It's okay to feel disappointed. If nothing has happened acutely, but you're still feeling negative, then you're probably dealing with one of two things. One, you're living in a hypothetical future that you're kind of fixated on, right? Even though there's no guarantee that this hypothetical future will actually happen. I mean, most of the time, the worst case scenario doesn't occur. I can't say it never occurs, but but it's rare from my experience that the worst case scenario that we can imagine actually manifests. So on the one hand, if you have these sort of pervasive negative feelings, um, you know, you're probably living in a hypothetical future or you're living in the past and perseverating on something that happened in the distant past. Maybe it happened a while ago. And you're just not letting it go or you can't let it go. You know, I once heard it said that worry and guilt are two wasted emotions. Worry often means we're living in the future and guilt means we're living in the past. And there's nothing you can do about either of those, right? The future hasn't happened yet. So there's absolutely no way to shape the future. And if there is a way to shape the future, then stop worrying and do what you can to shape that future. If it's preparation, if it's a foundation, whatever it is that would make the future more likely, then stop worrying about it and start doing it. If there's nothing you can do, then why spend all of your time worrying about it, right? We can't also change the past. So feeling guilty is kind of a waste. I mean, if you feel guilty, then just be better from this point forward. And I know I make that sound simple and I know it's not always that simple, but for me, that's kind of the mindset uh, that I have most of the time. It's like, can I do something about it? If I can't, then I'm going to stop thinking about it from that kind of negative way. You know, when shitty things happen to me, and and they do because they happen to everybody, um, I usually allow myself 24 to 48 hours to kind of sit in those negative feelings and honor those normal reactions I'm having to whatever the situation is. Look, we're not going to be happy all of the time, but I think not just acknowledging those feelings, but embracing them and allowing them to kind of run their course is actually why I have found it a little easier to kind of move forward and find that pathway out of those negative feelings. I mean, that's, to me, where my optimism comes from. If you really want to be happy, ironically, you have to stop expecting to be happy all of the time. An unrealistic expectation of happiness is going to leave you unhappy and constantly let down. It's a happiness killer. 
Happiness is found in the totality of our lives, not in the minutiae of every second of every day. Joining me this week for the interview is Mirko Chardon. Mirko is Novak Education's Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer. Now, before joining Novak Education, he was the founding head of school of the Putnam Avenue Upper School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mirko's work has involved all areas of school management and student support. His greatest experience and passion revolves around culturally connecting teaching and learning, recruiting and, re and retaining educators of color, restorative practices, and school culture. Mirko is a former trustee of Wheaton College and is the co-author of the best-selling book, Equity by Design, which he co-authored with Katie Novak. And that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. So Mirko, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing? So excited to be here today. So yeah, great to great to have you here. It's great to meet you. Certainly heard a lot about you from Katie, and I certainly enjoyed the book a lot. Um, and I've I'm really looking forward to the conversation. But I also found out just recently that you are an active hip hop artist. So toward the end of our conversation today, I'm going to give you the floor and give you a chance to talk a little bit about your music as well. But first, we're going to focus on education uh, sure. and talk about that and dig into equity by design. But before we do that, I want to just begin with your professional journey. Um, why did you pursue education as a career? Uh, and maybe share with us some of the professional highlights along your journey so far. Sure. So this is, um, it's, it's an interesting question for me, because I often say to folks that I, I, I didn't pick education. Education okay. picked me. It was something that I wanted to stay away from, um, actually because of the types of experiences that I had at the beginning of my journey um, mm -hmm. as a learner. Um, you know, I was a, a kid who landed at high school who had been expelled three times from the public school system, who had felony gun charges, and 100% had every desire in my heart to drop out when I became a 16-year-old, uh, because my sense was school doesn't work for people like me. Educators are liars. They're not connected to the world outside of school, and this is not helping me to navigate, you know, the dilemmas that make this world a very scary place for me. But I encountered um, a school that was a public school. Um, but there was a philosophy, a, a way of being, a culture, um, certain practices that the educators, um, you know, promoted and engaged in that really communicated to me that school can look and feel very different. That, you know, I, I think I often say that school doesn't have to be something that's being done to you. It can be something that's being done for and with you. And, um, you know, wrestling with educators who believed in universal design, believed in equity, believed in student voice, um, you know, believed in representation, dynamically changed who I thought I was as a learner um, and changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, you know, I made commitments as a result of that experience that I would go forward and try to share with as many young people as possible. Now, the fact that school could be very different because I knew if young people could be exposed to school in a way that worked for them, no school that communicated was about making sense of the craziness outside of school, that there'd be more youth who'd be successful. Um, so I've been committed to being an educator, um, you know, first in the city of Boston, my come from place is a way of giving back. Um, you know, I became a school leader there. Um, I think I am, I'm extremely proud of being the founding or former founding head of school, the Putnam Avenue Upper School in Cambridge, Mass. Um, kind of an opportunity to be at the helm of pulling together a school community that revolved around um, equity, revolved around 
no, uh, ensuring that our students are reflected and have powerful experiences and certainly proud of the work that I've been able to do with uh, Dr. Katie Novak um, as part of the Novak team and certainly as one of the co-authors of Equity by Design, being able to share these ideas with educators across the country, you know, in hopes that we can provide relief, you know, for our kiddos has been um, amazing. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting when you talk about, you know, how education chose you. I find educators are in one of two camps most of the time. Either school worked for them and now they're back to kind of not not recreate their youth, but to kind of continue that experience of education being such a positive experience for them. Or like you echoed the idea that school was the absolute opposite for them and they're back to kind of contribute to a system that becomes more equitable and more aligned. You had mentioned that you found that, you know, that your teachers and your experience, you said two things that really caught my attention. One, they were liars. And the other was that they were not connected to reality. Can you talk a little bit more about specifically what was it that made you draw that conclusion about the educators? We're not trying to paint broad strokes sure. here with educators, but we're saying that was your experience. So from your experience, what was it that brought you to that conclusion? Well, well, for me, there, there was a very sharp point in the, the, the fourth grade where, um, you know, I will often say to folks that I received a message, uh, you know, from my educators, um, who I thought were good people, well-intended people, but weren't always mindful of the impact of their decision making, um, that it wasn't okay to be me. And I, I say that because I'm, I'm, I'm a child of immigrants. I'm a first-generation Haitian American, always had a great deal of pride in that identity. Um, until these encounters I had in the fourth grade where I would have educators who would ask questions when they'd find out about my ethnic background. They'd say things like, Mirko, you don't sound Haitian or look Haitian or you don't smell Haitian. No, how could you truly be Haitian? And, you know, I got Christmas, I think, from them. No, while understanding perhaps it wasn't their intent to make me uncomfortable, but that there was some judgment or bias about folks who helped from my background, um, yeah. that sparked within me um, at that young age, you know, uh, willingness to start questioning, hey, why are we studying what we're studying? Um, how come folks who work here don't look like me or, you know, other kids who were in the class? And, and that's when I encountered that sense of, wait, maybe I also can't trust educators because... Prior to that point, I'd always been told that there was no such thing as a bad question asked um, and that I was the future. Uh, but when I asked questions about representation and why we studied, why what we were studying or how this connected to the world outside of school, folks were sharp with me. Um, you know, they would tell me to put my head down. They'd send me to the principal's office. I'd be told that I was a behavior problem. And, and that created this experience where it felt like I encountered a lot of educators who would say that they cared but when there were moments of vulnerability where difficult questions were asked, um, you know, where there were questions that were outside of the realm of whatever was comfortable to them, I would see them turn on students and see them turn on me and lash out. And that, that communicated that there was something more going on than what they were verbalizing. Um, and that changed everything for me. It's almost a careful what you wish for. You know, on the one hand, as teachers, we advocate for students to become independent thinkers. We want them to be self-advocates. We want them to develop that kind of, like, again, independence, and yet not in my classroom, right? And sometimes we can bristle at the things we're actually trying to, or at least we say we're trying to develop in our students. And yet your, your experience was one where it was, I say one thing, 
but the experience was another, which is, you know, we want you to be independent outside of my own classroom. Uh, yeah. Fascinating story for sure. Uh, longtime listeners will remember that we had, we've had both Katie Novak and Leanne Young. Of course, you wrote the book with Katie Novak and Leanne Young in the podcast last spring discussing UDL. Uh, but for new listeners, let's sort of start with a, a view from, say, 20, 30,000 feet. New sure. listeners, or for those not quite familiar with UDL, Universal Design for Learning, how do you explain it? Like, what is what is the sort of operational kind of definition of, of Universal Design for Learning that you sort of utilize to help educators move in that direction? Sure. Well, I, I always start by saying it's an educational framework, you know, that it's mindset work, that it's adaptive work. And I always begin the conversation there because I want to be sure that folks understand that we're, we're not just talking about uh, a new list of strategies. You know, we are talking about, um, you know, wrestling with how we perceive our learners, how we perceive our role in the work and what the work is. And that requires us to reflect and dig in and get to those spaces of vulnerability um, intentionally you know, in ways that are very different than traditional teaching. And, you know, I typically layer it by saying, you know, in universal design, there are three, you know, pillars, you know, of that adaptive framework. First and foremost, that we understand that brain science has communicated that veritability is a thing, that there's always difference that's in play. Um, whether or not we think we are aware of it, it's always present. So if we're truly meeting the needs of others, we plan for difference. And in fact, in our world outside of school, um, you know, folks typically plan, you know, for different types of clients and customers to ensure that there's, you know, access to whatever their service or business is. We need to make sure that that's happening within schools. Second, you know, pillar is this notion of firm goals, flexible means. You know, when we exist or breathe in this world of education and say things, such as high expectations for all, are we truly saying that? Or is it a circumstance where we're saying high expectations for some and different pathways for others? You know, through the lenses of UDL, we're saying we hold everybody to the same target um, because if we change the target, we understand that we've changed their pathway or trajectory. And that's not our role. Our role is not to evaluate whether or not certain children have potential. You know, it's to ensure that that potential is released. And that goes to that third pillar or tenet which is the belief that each and every single one of our students has the potential to become an expert learner. If the barriers, if the obstacles, if the things that are getting in the way of them having access to remove, including, you know, if those things that we're removing also lie in the midst of some of our unchecked belief systems and assumptions, you know, about other individuals. Yeah. Um, you know, if we address these things, then we can plan and create educational experiences that ensure that our young people get to success because we've taken into consideration difference. We've taken into consideration what it means you know, for them to get to that target. Um, and we are not letting ourselves off the hook when things are challenging. You know, we're realizing, okay, if it's challenging, it's because they're barriers we haven't addressed. But once we address those barriers, things will work. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And I, I specifically am drawn to that third tenet because I've found myself recently in workshops and presentations continually sending the message that for me, the most lethal statement any teacher can make is you don't understand, Tom, our kids can't do that. And when I hear that, it just, it, you know, I just look at them and I say, well, if you think that, then they won't. And they yeah. can't because you will be the one standing in the way of their opportunity to get there. And so that that certainly resonated with me for sure. Um, okay, so let's let's dive in a little bit. I want you to help us see the Venn diagram, if you will, between UDL and being culturally responsive. You and Katie sure. write on page one fourteen. You write culturally responsive education brings together universal design for learning, 
funds of knowledge and the importance of student identity. So is it your contention that UDL is ideally aligned with the goal of being more culturally responsive? And if so, and, and more equitable, and if so, then draw, draw that connection to us through that Venn diagram between the two. No, absolutely. And I, I, I see it not even just as a, a Venn diagram. I see it as, right. you know, the, the you know, two sides of the same coin. You know, right. if we're creating you know, spaces for our young people that provide them with equitable access, you know, meaning that we're connecting them to the content and ways that work for them. You know, if we're truly identifying barriers that get in the way, we have to take into consideration identity. We have to take into consideration journey. Um, you know, in essence, we have to become students of our learners. You know, we have to make sense of what is it that they know? What is their value system? You know, what's the previous information that they're bringing to the table? Um, so we can identify what are the particular barriers that may be in play. This also requires us to reflect on our own experiences, um, our own judgments, you know, of other individuals and ensure that we're not the ones who are superimposing, you know, barriers on our young people, you know, based on belief systems or traumatic experiences that we've had that are not checked. Um, see, when we take into consideration who our young people are, not just as static beings, but as human beings such as ourselves, you know, we understand that there's a multitude of layers you know, in regards to you know, what influences you know, what they know or how they're able to enter into a space and feel treated with respect and dignity um, and how they're able to enter into a space and you know, feel treated safely. Um, and you know, through the lens of universal design, we are proactively taking into consideration all those dynamics and are wrestling with, hey, you know, if this is what the standard says that a young person is supposed to know and be able to do, you know, how can I identify every possible, you know, barrier, um, you know, or obstacle that's going to get in the way that's going to limit this young person from showing me you know, that capacity that they have within themselves. And, you know, how can I not then take into consideration, you know, their social emotional being, um, you know, who they are as an individual, as it pertains to their identity, how they identify what that means in this space and what that means as it pertains to their experience or even their willingness to trust me, you know, as an educator. Because if I can't take into consideration trust and that psychological contract, that trusting relationship that needs to be established between learner and teacher, um, you know, I might then not be aware of one of the biggest barriers that are in the space. You know, if my young people don't feel as if to me, um, you know, what it is that's living in their brain spaces is they're wrestling with the content and is they're wrestling with these learning journeys. You know, so for me, one and the same, we're authentically providing all of our young people um, you know, with an experience that revolves around them and looks up the fact that they are the ones who have potential and that we are actually cultivating that potential as we coach their growth and development, then we have to take into consideration the full magnitude of who they are and not just the slices that um, we're comfortable engaging with. You know, I'm, I'm curious about maybe an example, because I think that for, for most educators, we, we would probably understand more the notion of learning diversity in terms of how I learn, taking those barriers away. And clearly, I think your point about trust is well taken, that if I don't trust the person who is leading me, facilitating, guiding me through. 
But I want to drill down maybe a little bit on how might I recognize I'm being culturally unresponsive or insensitive from an identity perspective in terms of how I present the learning to, to, to my class or to certain learners in the classroom. What are some specific examples of where that might inadvertently be happening? Sure. Well, um, you know, I, I think one of the best ways to, you know, to address that in the context of, you know, UDL is through hearing student voice um, and providing opportunities, you know, when we talk about funds of knowledge, um, to kind of just demystify that somewhat, to provide opportunities, um, you know, for our young people to share with us information that they know about something. So, for example, in the classroom setting, um, in a very not threatening way, you know, great opportunity to gather some information about what my young people know um, mm-hmm. so I can appropriately plan for their learning may be simply to ask, hey, what are some hobbies, um, you know, or some talents that some of you have that I'm not aware of? How did you learn these things? Um, you know, what was the process? Is there a family history or connection that's there? Very not threatening. An opportunity for a young person to share as deeply as they want or as lightly as they chose. Um, you know, in my circumstance, if I was asked that question, just doing some brief modeling, you know, I would share, hey, a talent that some folks might not know that I have um, is that, uh, you know, I know how to, uh, you know, fabricate things out of carbon fiber and aluminum um, to do car work and that I've actually, you know, worked on and have built with my uncles, um, you know, cars for years and years. And that is because there's been this cultural connection through the five uncles I have as a part of this extended family, this extended Haitian American immigrant family where there was valuation that was put on finding rusted or beat up cars and figuring out how we can know, beautify them and this competitive nature that lived in my family circle. So sharing that brief question or sharing that brief response in reaction to that question, you know, communicates out to the educator, you know, I would assume, hey, you know, this is an individual who has a value system that revolves around, you know, extended family members. And there is some role that, you know, uncles have played, you know, in this young man's life. And there is some connection or passion to, you know, vehicles and this idea of being able to take something and make it into something else. Now, as an entry point, that might not seem like it's huge or crazy, but as an entry point, as I'm thinking about, you know, engagement, you know, or that first UDL guideline of recruiting interest when I think about engagement, this provides me with an opportunity to say, hey, maybe I'll use some analogies, maybe I'll use some metaphors that, you know, connect with some of the things that I've heard from this kiddo or some other kiddos within the class, or maybe I'll just keep track of this. So when there's opportunity to refer to it, you know, I can, and perhaps, you know, reflect back to that young person that I've heard them. And then I'm trying to create a learning experience that revolves around what they know, because they're not an empty vessel. And I'm acknowledging that in this moment. Yeah, it, it really makes me think that uh, sometimes we, we make too much out of it in the sense that we think that being culturally responsive is one massive thing that we do in our classroom, as opposed to the accumulation of all of those little moments and opportunities that we take to get to know our learners, understand their backgrounds, and then take advantage of those moments where we can sort of widen the net, if you will, or widen the, the opportunity to, to share things, whether, you, whether it's an analogy or an example, it really comes from the background that I understand 
understand with our students. I think that's a, a really, really important point you bring up there. Now, on page 139 of the book, and I'm not going to quote the book through the whole conversation, <laughs> but there are some things you say that I think are really, really important. You and Katie write that on page 139, UDL can also be leveraged to meet, and I found this really interesting, the social, emotional, and behavioral needs of students by designing experiences grounded in restorative justice. Okay, UDL and restorative justice. Mirko, uh, walk us through that. Well, I think it's it's really about treating our young people with respect and dignity by providing them with voice, and particularly the opportunity to provide voice on whether or not what's happening in the classroom is meeting their needs. And that's a very scary thing for educators because it you know we talked about vulnerability a little bit earlier. You know, it requires putting vulnerability front and center and understanding, hey, this learning journey is not supposed to be about us, it's supposed to be about our young people. And you know, there is nothing I think that's more restorative than providing that young person with the opportunity to say, hey, you know, this class session didn't work for me. You know, I, I know that there was a goal that we were supposed to achieve, but this didn't work with the way that I learned. And there's some other things that I need to get this information. You know, providing them with that opportunity to, you know, reinforce the development of that sense of self-efficacy, um, to reinforce the development of that sense of independence, and to reinforce the fact that their voices actually matter. And, you know, when we say in schools that we are not trying to duplicate compliance, then, you know, we have to get into these spaces in which we can actually hear, you know, from our clients and customers. Um, sometimes I lift that up for educators. We're service providers. So we're held to the same standard as any other person in this society who's a service provider. Um, and one of the most restorative things you can ever do is allow one of your customers and clients the opportunity, you know, um, in an endearing way to let you know that you missed the mark, not because everything is all over, but because they're letting you know, hey, in this caring, trusting relationship, I need you to try a little something else to, you know, help me get where you need me to be in this moment. Yeah, it's uh, it is interesting to let our guard down. You talked about self-efficacy and it takes me right back to earlier when we talked about that third tenant, that if we don't have the efficacy and the belief in our students, how in the world are they going to become sort of their own, have developed their own efficacy and be efficacious about their potential success for sure. So Absolutely. I, I love that idea uh, of, of creating that, that opportunity for our students to take a hold of things and, and honor, uh, honor that their position uh, as, as valued members and, and, and strong members of our community, but also as independent thinkers and learners as they grow toward, uh, you know, mastery of whatever they're in pursuit of. Okay, Absolutely. let's finish. Yeah, so let's finish up with a, um, a final question. It's a two-parter here. Um, and then I want to talk about a, a question and then some advice for educators. So the first uh, piece is the question. And I think sometimes this goes for many aspects that we try to implement in schools. There's always a light version, right? So I want to talk about how do I avoid, if I'm a teacher, I want to get, I want to start implementing UDL in my classroom. How do I avoid UDL light? What are some seductive shortcuts that sometimes educators fall prey to uh, when, when pursuing UDL or quite honestly, when pursuing any other program initiative framework, whatever it is, what are some of those shortcuts we want to avoid? I, I think moving too fast, too quickly and, okay. and not understanding that it's, it's really about developing your capacity with something, you know, before we start experimenting on other human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and as it pertains to, you know, educational frameworks, you know, it's, it's, it's adaptive first prior to it being technical. You know, I run into a lot of educators who will say UDL sounds amazing, but can you give me that UDL lesson plan template? And my pushback will have to be that, you know, your students are not static beings. 
in the same manner that you as an adult learner is not a static being. So there's no way that we can just automatize this and say, hey, we can just check these boxes and we've universally you know, supported all of our kiddos. No, the work is much more challenging than that. Um, and it, it requires almost the sense of commitment to being an action researcher, because what worked for kids last year, if we're taking into consideration that veritability is a thing, you know, even if it was amazing, it's not necessarily going to be what it takes you know, in the next year. I think the world of the pandemic in some ways has lifted up how vulnerable we are as people and how quickly sometimes we need to pivot to address what our needs are. Um, and I think I would hold that front and center for folks. You know, it's mindset work. That third tenet that you uh, have lifted up a couple of times in regards to our belief about kids. Um, sometimes I really push educators to think about what that means. You know, what does it authentically mean to truly believe that all of our young people have that potential to be experts? And what does that then communicate about what our jobs look like and the decisions that we make? If we don't pause to reflect on it, um, you know, for the sake of wanting to quickly put out the fire, we will miss, you know, a great opportunity to um, operate with a higher level of precision, um, you know, so that we can get the job done differently and hopefully, you know, lead to different results. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm, if I'm an educator and I want to get started now, I know, you know, everyone's in a little different place and we all have strengths and, and, you know, that we can capitalize on where we get reaffirmed and all that. But let's assume I'm starting from scratch, which again, mm -hmm. I know very few educators are, but if I'm starting from scratch with UDL, what is the, what is the way to get started? How do I implement UDL? And, and I mean specifically, not just implementing UDL, but implementing UDL for the specific purpose of becoming culture, a more culturally responsive teacher. Where, where's my starting point if I'm starting from scratch? Well, I, I think the starting point is, you know, it always is looking at your standards and unpacking them. You know, what is it that my standards are explicitly saying that a young person is supposed to know and be able to do? You know, can I wrestle with that, unpack it? Can I create a conceptual framework in my mind of what it looks like when they actually are able to do this at a high level? Then can I take into consideration who my learners are? Um, and can I wrestle with what barriers you know, I think may exist that will limit them from being able to do this work at a high level. And as I'm taking into consideration the barriers and taking into consideration my learners, you know, let me be sure to take into consideration ability, but also identity. Um, let me also take into consideration my own identity. Um, and then let's start planning. Let's start putting together, um, you know, choices and options that can get my kiddos there. And let me have a willingness to check with them you know, in regards to how my design has made them feel. Um, and let me normalize that because I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be perfect right out the gate and perfection should not be what I strive for. No, right. normalizing this approach is what I need to strive for, but I'm not going to get it right all the time. And I need to, you know, wrestle with that as well. That can be dissatisfying for educators because a lot of us like getting the, you know, straight A's and A pluses all the time. Um, and this work doesn't look like that. So, you know, I think folks really have to wrestle with that. And again, take in mind that we're not talking about wrestling with a, a static being. You know, we're talking about a human being um, who has a variety of different needs. And that means that, you know, the work is always going to have a level of complexity to it um, that's, uh, you know, going to require some flexibility. And I need to normalize that. Yeah. I love that you started with the uh, standards. Uh, and interesting, I want to get your take on this because this is a question or a statement I get from folks all the time. And it's this conflating of 
standards and standardization. And I think there are some who might look at UDL and say, well, UDL and standards don't really go together. I know you've gotten that question from, from folks many times. How do you respond to that? I'm curious just to hear how you respond to it, because I know how I respond to it, but, sure. but standards versus standardization. We can have standards. We can implement UDL. I see, see that as being seamless. You do too. But how do you help those who don't see it that way? How do you help them see with a little more clarity? Well, I, I, I think it, it, it comes back to this notion of, you know, what are our learners supposed to know and be able to do? And are we authentically wrestling with you know, what is that information that we're supposed to be sharing with them? Um, what are the skills that we're developing within them um, so that they can do this stuff without us? And if we don't have clarity, you know, in regards to what those things are, then despite what our best of intentions are, you know, we, we can't authentically say then that we are, you know, educating young people in a way that's going to lead, you know, towards their future success. And, um, that's what always pushes me back to standards. Sometimes when I encounter folks who will say that they think standards are all about standardization, I will, you know, realize that perhaps they may have been educators who haven't had the opportunities to sit with standards and, you know, engage in exercises where we pull them apart and make sense of them. Um, you know, the language of standards can sometimes be scary. Um, you know, it, it can sometimes feel really funky. Uh, to wrestle with what that meaning is. But I think if educators can identify that target, you know, then we can drive our young folks you know, towards that point. And without those targets, we, we, we can't authentically hold them accountable or ensure that they're growing in ways um, that are gonna be to their benefit and not just ours. Yeah. Yeah, they may have may not have experienced it themselves as students. They may not have tried it as teachers. And again, there are multiple pathways to a standard. There are multiple ways to demonstrate a standard that meet the full cognitive rigor of that standard. And I think that UDL is perfectly positioned as a framework to allow teachers to really manifest that within their classroom. Uh, Mirko, this has been, been a great conversation. I've got two questions left as we finish up today. And these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Here's the first one, and you can take this in any direction you want. Uh, but educationally speaking, the question is, what keeps you up at night? Uh, the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is, um, you know, the, the, the fear that um, in our industry, we are moving away from the realization that our work is all about developing self-efficacy and independence within our kiddos. Now, I always say to educators, um, you know, kids that we're working with are going to grow up and become decision makers with us. And then they're ultimately going to be in the driver's seat of this society. And I want to ensure that I am not riddled with anxiety because I think that the kids who are making decisions for me don't have what it takes because I know in my heart of hearts, I didn't do my part to support them and ensure that they were provided with those tools. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is that is where our expertise, I know in my work in assessment and grading, I always talk to folks about building your assessment literacy or your expertise is not about you. It's about you teaching the students how to do that on their own behalf so that you don't have to be the one overseeing and monitoring. And I love that idea of that, that self-efficacy. All right. Last question as we finish up, and it's a question about success, personal success, pro professional success, wherever, again, you want to take this in any direction. But the question is simple. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Uh, my definition of success, I would say, is being able to, um, you know, go to sleep and have a sound sleep at night, you know, feeling like you've 
accomplished and made a difference or impact in the world. Um, I think especially in the world we're living in right now, where so many are wrestling with different elements of um, you know, mental health, so much anxiety, the notion of being able to get to that place of peace and feeling like, hey, I know I've done a good job today, I think is invaluable. So for me, I think that's, that's what success is. And some days it feels greater than others. <laughs> but, you know, as long as you're able to say, yeah. hey, I'm not up at night worrying, I did what I needed to do, and I had a positive impact, and I can rest, then I think we're there. Yeah, that uh, that restful sleep uh, is a really a really good indicator of a lot of things, isn't it? As we uh, as we recharge for the next day. All right, Mirko, before we uh, close out, I, I mentioned this earlier. I want to give you the floor to give you a ch- an opportunity to talk about your hip hop artistry, uh, talk about your passion for music, what hip hop brings to your life, and and what is your mission with your music? Like, what is the vision, the mission that you've sort of forged ahead with? Uh, as you as you have this other side to you, this other career that you're 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 trying to grow. Well, I I, I always say to um to educators and in fact anyone who will listen that um you know who we are in our personal lives is who we are in our professional lives. Mm-hmm. You know, in our professional lives, sometimes we wear these personas that we assume that folks can't see through. Um, no, but for me, I think I've made a conscious decision to say I, I want to always show up as my authentic self. Um, you know, and brings to the table the fullness of whatever represents, you know, who and what Mirko is. So music and artistry has always been a part of who I've been as an educator in the classroom, um, you know, even as a school leader. Uh, you know, I, I often share with folks that some of my passion, you know, for educating, educating and, and, and writing in particular was due to, um, you know, teachers who, when I was a disengaged student, helped me see the value of um, you know, my rap songs and poetry and you know, how it was a means of you know, sharing voice um, and how different types of written expression were ways of sharing voice and ideas. And you know, that really showed me um, you know, what it meant to be a writer and it developed a passion within me to wanna wrestle with how do we share voice expression and ideas in different ways. And for me, um, you know, that was kind of everything. It was an educator showing me that there were funds of knowledge that I already had and skill sets I already had due to the power of the connection, you know, with this artistry. Um, and it's something that I've never let go of. Um, and I, I, I'd like to echo back to educators and the young people, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that artistry, you know, sometimes helps us share, you know, our thinking and learning, you know, even our reflections in different powerful ways. And, you know, those are tools that can help us learn, grow, and make sense of things. And then as we talk about creating spaces that are universally designed, we have to take into consideration the fact that some of us do our best thinking, um, you know, when we are able to wrestle with melodies. You know, some of us do our best thinking, know when we are able to draw some of us do our best thinking my wife is a former professional dancer some of us do our best thinking when there's an element of you know kinesthetic expression that's there and um you know we we need to not place shame or blame on these different these different elements of who we are and particularly in the realm of academia um because it's all about how we as human beings are making sense of some really complex ideas you know wrestling with them um, and sharing that information back to others in community. So hopefully we can continue to grow and learn as a society. So for me, I feel it's, it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, 
I love that. Uh, showing up as our authentic selves. Uh, so where do we find you? YouTube, Apple, Spotify, where can we, where can we find so you? All digital music stores. Um, okay. you know, uh, wh wherever you, uh, you listen to music. Um, you know, if you search for my full name, Marco Chardon, you'll find stuff that pops up. Um, you'll find music videos, you'll find different albums, you'll find features on, um, uh, mixtapes. Um, I have been doing this since I've been a teenager and I have no intention of letting it go. Absolutely. Uh, I love that. And uh, I, I love learning about educators who have other sides to themselves. And, and as you said earlier, the authentic self, who you are as a complete person, not just as an educator. Listeners, of course, as Mirko said, you can find the music on any digital music store or YouTube, any places like that. But you can also follow Mirko on Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Mirko Milk. And on Instagram, it's the opposite. It's at Milk Mirko. Uh, all lowercase, uh, all one word. And of course, you can connect with Mirko at the NovakEducation.com website. Mirko, it was uh, really a pleasure having you here. Uh, thanks for Thank doing you. this, man. I really appreciate it. No, it was an honor. It was fun. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about the distinction between leveled questions and leveled responses. This is something that's been coming up several times over the last few months in many of the workshops and trainings I've been conducting, and it most often comes up when teachers are discussing the structure of a summative assessment, especially when that summative assessment is something like a test or any kind of tangible assessment that really does look more uh, like a traditional kind of assessment. And as I've said many times before, there's nothing wrong with tests. Tests are fine as an assessment method, but it's, but it's clear, or format, I should say, but, but it's clear that we have for too long disproportionately assessed through the use of tests. Uh, but on their own, there's nothing wrong with that format. Uh, when talking with teachers about the structure of the format of the organization of the tests, I often hear teachers refer to this idea of asking a level one question or a series of level two questions or level three questions and so on. So let's start with the biggest idea when it comes to summative assessment and the assessment of standards. And that is that the questions aren't leveled. It's the responses that are leveled. Evidence is evidence, but for me, the only evidence that should be used summatively is the evidence that demonstrates the meaning of a standard, and every standard has an identifiable cognitive complexity and a depth of thinking that's required to fully meet that standard. So, for example, the standard could be at the analysis level on the taxonomy and require DOK three-level thinking, like the student has to make an inference or draw a conclusion to fully encapsulate the depth and breadth of that standard. That means to assess that standard, my questions would be questions that ask the students to do the analysis and do the thinking or do the inferencing. To ask any DOK1 or DOK2 questions would represent questions that are less than the cognitive rigor and the depth of thinking required for the standard. And therefore, that evidence for me should not be used summatively so there's no reason to kind of rate those responses, right? Last week, I talked about mastery for targets or the underpinnings of the standards. And I've talked about this many times on the podcast about how the underpinnings or targets should be used formatively to advance learning forward so that students reach the full depth and breadth of the standard. When you start including DOK1 questions, DOK2 questions to assess a standard that's at the DOK3 level of thinking, 
you actually make it a little bit more difficult to determine the student's overall level of understanding. A student could, for example, show mastery on the underpinnings or the underlying skills, which could inadvertently offset any mistakes or errors in thinking for the true depth of the standard, making the result of that assessment slightly skewed. Now, at times, teachers aren't even really referring to DOK levels, but are referring to levels on their rubrics, which again, for me, is an error in the way the rubric is designed. Rubrics describe gradations of quality, right? The cognitive complexity should not change as you read across the row of an analytic rubric or as you read through the levels of a holistic rubric. If the levels change, then the complexity is changing, and essentially, you're, you're changing the expectation of thinking. It's not the thinking that should change in a rubric. What should change is the degree to which the student did the thinking, right? It's all at the same level of complexity and depth of thinking. It's the quality of their response. So leveled questions are really a learning progression that essentially we could use through assessment, we could use to lead students through our progression from the simple to the sophisticated, from the foundational skills to the full depth and breadth of the standard. Now, there's definitely a place for those leveled questions along the learning progression. And as you recall from a few episodes ago, when I talked about that assessment mantra of assess because you, uh, because you need to, grade when you have to, right? That there's a place for all of that along that learning progression to, to confirm that students are ready for that uptick in sophistication as they move through our instructional unit. So if you're wanting to create a learning progression that has those moments of assessment to confirm the next steps in learning or to reveal that some intervention is necessary, then utilizing leveled questions along your learning progression would be wise. However, when you're assessing the standard at its full cognitive complexity for the purpose of grading, then the questions need to be all at the same cognitive complexity, the same level. Anything below that level of cognitive rigor would represent evidence that is less than the standards. Anything above that would represent an unreasonable or an unfair expectation for most learners. Your standards create your grading ceiling. They don't create your instructional ceiling. I want to be clear on that. So if you want to push your students above and beyond the curricular standards instructionally, then by all means, feel free to do so. Absolutely. That's simply called being a learner-responsive teacher. Now, you have undoubtedly many students in your class who could at times work above the grade level expectation. That doesn't mean all of that has to funnel back to their gradebook. If everything keeps funneling back to their gradebook, then we are simply going to perpetuate this paradigm that grades, marks, scores, etc. are compensation. That everything they do and everything we do is kind of a currency exchange, right? You do this and I'll pay you. And by pay, I mean with points, scores, or levels. Now, the only upside to an assessment that used leveled questions is that you can sort of see how the student progresses through the skills of the learning progression and maybe encapsulate that in one kind of assessment and maybe get an overall sense of what's next for that learner. But because the questions aren't comparable, because they're at different levels of cognitive complexity, then any overall score or ratio would be entirely useless because the questions, again, are not comparable. I suppose you could look at the entirety of that evidence, but I think the questions at the lower levels will actually be more of a distraction because in a well-crafted assessment of a standard, all of those underpinnings and all of those levels that are less than the full rigor of the standard 
will be represented anyway in the question. So the leveled questions in some respects are redundant and, and may make your assessments exponentially longer than they need to be. That's definitely what my assessments looked like early in my career. Um, but I, but I, if I had to do it today, I, I could never see myself using those types of assessments where I had just those different levels of questions throughout uh, an assessment. Again, level questions can be effective along a learning progression to get that formative verification that students are ready for an uptick in sophistication. But I would suggest that leveled questions are never used together on the same assessment, right? For me, they should be strategically distributed along the learning progression as a way of assessment planning alongside your unit planning. And when it comes to summative evidence, questions aren't leveled again. The responses are leveled and gauged against the same level of cognitive rigor. So if the standard was you have to do an analysis for the purpose of drawing a conclusion or let's say you're making an inference, then you would be rated at level one because your inference, you did the analysis, and your inference was most basic, right? It was limited. It was a novice level, very much a beginning level. You'd be a level two if your inference was partway there. You're developing, right? You've got some aspects of strength in that inference, but it's still missing some things. You'd be a level three, for example, if you did the analysis and your inference was proficient, meaning you essentially got the gist of what the data or whatever it is you were analyzing was, was trying to say. And then you'd maybe a level four if your inference was particularly insightful uh, or creative or something like that, you did the analysis. So you, you're at level one, level two, level three, level four on your rating summatively. You did the analysis, did the analysis, did the analysis, did the analysis. Okay, so the questions uh, aren't leveled. The, the responses are what we level. So in the case of summative assessment, when you're grading, as I've said, no leveled questions, just leveled responses. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder, check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning opportunities this summer and also coming this fall. Next week, my guest will be my friend Mike Mattis. Mike is a globally recognized author and speaker in both PLCs and RTI. We're going to focus on RTI next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.